if you are ready, I might be implying several things. I might be asking you if you're ready to get ready for lunch here in just a, a little while or be ready for some other thing that you plan to do this afternoon or sometime soon. But when I ask the question, I have something specific in mind and, and along the lines of a study that we've been engaged in for the last couple of weeks. Are you ready to defend what you believe? Do you understand the things that you believe and why you believe them? Are you ready to explain your faith, to show why you believe what you believe? As we often cite, 1 Peter 3, verse 15 tells us to be ready always, to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have an obligation to be ready to explain our faith. And so along those lines, we have been talking about the evidence that we see in the Word of God. We really think that there's strong evidence in God's Word for the things that we believe. And so when we ask people to study with us or to listen to our explanation of things we believe, we are not just basing that upon human opinion, my own think-sos, but rather we are asking them to consider the very substantial evidence that is found in the Word of God. This morning, or the last couple of weeks, we talked about the existence of God, we talked about His creation of the universe, and Today, what we want to talk about is the Bible itself. We believe that the evidence says that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. That's really an important consideration. And so we want to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. We'll be repeating things we've talked about many times before, but so important for us to have these things well established in our mind so that we can answer others who ask us about our faith. Thanks for being here on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. We're glad that you're here. We appreciate your presence very much. We're always encouraged to be together with others of like precious faith as we study from God's Word and worship Him. Uh, as always, we're open to your questions. If, you, if there's something that you don't understand or potentially even something that you disagree with, please say so so that we can talk about that, that we can get to the Scriptures and make sure that we uh, are in agreement about the true answer found in the Word of God. So please ask questions if you have them. Thank you for being here this morning. Let's talk about the Bible as the inspired Word of God. My first question to you would, would be, do you believe that? We think the evidence says that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, but do you believe that? I hope everybody here this morning would say yes. Of course, there are many people in the world who say no. and We're going to be trying to produce evidence that would convince them uh, of this truth. But I even think that some people have a faulty idea of inspiration itself. Some people, when they talk about inspiration, would suggest something no more than maybe the inspired work of an artist or a, a poet, you know. Maybe this guy, he's a, he's a pretty good watercolor painter, and he's out one evening, and boy, that sunset, it's just gorgeous. Maybe he's at the edge of a lake, you know, and the sun is setting and it's reflecting off the water. Oh, man, I just got to sit down here and paint that. You know, he's inspired to paint. Or he's inspired to write a, a poem about what he just saw. Some people think that uh, uh, about inspiration. Or other people, uh, maybe more specific kind of idea, people would have the idea of inspiration that God gave certain men some good ideas. He sort of planted a concept in their mind. And then he let them sit down and write that out using their own words to express the general idea that God put in their mind. In fact, a Gallup poll a while back said that 40, 46% of the Americans they surveyed had this idea of inspiration. 
that God gave men the basic ideas, but He left it up to them to express it in their own words. And the, the result of that would be, of course, that the Bible uh, has good concepts behind it, but you can't, you can't come down too hard on any specifics because while God gave the ideas, fallible men wrote them out and, and therefore any particular specific thing that they wrote about, doctrines of salvation or how we ought to worship or marriage, divorce and remarriage, uh, we, we can dismiss that because maybe the men didn't write it down accurately. So I hope you agree with me that those definitions really convey an inaccurate view of inspiration. When we look to the Word of God, I think that it explains exactly what we should believe about inspiration. In the text that Trent read for us earlier, very familiar to us all, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, Truly furnished unto all good works. The, the phrase or expression all scripture very literally means everything written. Uh, so the things that are written is what's under consideration here. And it says the things that are written are given by inspiration of God. As we've pointed out before, this, ex this expression inspiration of God literally could be translated God-breathed. Now, that being the case then, this expression, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, could be literally translated, everything written is God-breathed. Now, what's the implications of that? Well, the implications of that are that when we speak, we're breathing. We have to breathe out, as we often explain. We have to breathe out to make sounds uh, to speak words. And so when this says that everything is written is God-breathed, it is saying everything written is as though God spoke it Himself. And that's what we really need to understand about inspiration. When we pick up our Bibles to read them, we're reading the very words of God. Homer Haley said it this way. He said, verbal inspiration of the Scriptures is what I believe. I mean by this that when the prophets of the Old Covenant or apostles of the New spoke or wrote, they spoke or wrote by inspiration, God giving them the idea. Notice, God giving them the idea and selecting and choosing from their vocabulary the words that they were to use in making the idea known. So notice, he's saying, God gave them the idea and then he selected from their working vocabulary the words to use to express that idea. I simply affirm, he goes on to say, that the original manuscripts were spoken and written by men as they were guided by the Holy Spirit both in thought and words in which the thoughts were made known. And I really do believe that that's an accurate description of the notion of inspiration. So, what about this? The evidence, we claim, shows that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Well, what does the Bible say about itself? Let's look at some Old Testament passages first. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and I will put words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto the words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. I think here Moses was prophesying about the coming of Christ, actually. Uh, Jesus was a prophet of God, among other things. But notice concerning that prophet that Moses was foretelling, he said, I will put my words in his mouth. 
get this, he did not say, I will put my ideas into his head and then he'll say it however he chooses to say it. No, he actually said, I will put my very literal words in his mouth. My words, which he shall speak, it says. And so, that's the way inspiration works. God put the word in their mouth. They spoke. When they spoke, they spoke God's words, not just God's ideas. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, David said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Notice, his word was in my tongue, not just his ideas. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. And again, emphasis, my words in the prophet's mouth. And so I think it's clear from those Old Testament passages, this true idea of inspiration. It's not a, a concept that was given. It's not a broad general idea that was revealed. It is the very words that were to be spoken and written were given from God. What about the New Testament? I think we see the same sort of idea in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Here Jesus was talking about the Old Testament. And he said he came to fulfill the things that were revealed in the Old Testament. That it would not be taken away till all had been fulfilled. The reason I bring this to your attention is what he said about the jot and the tittle. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The jot and the tittle were the slightest strokes of the pen when you wrote out the Hebrew alphabet. Here's a, here's a graphic of what Hebrew looks like, and it's really tough. Uh, and, and you may remember that the Hebrews didn't read from right to left like we do. They, they wrote from left to right. And just one little stroke of the pen changed a letter into something different. And so Jesus said, even the slightest strokes of the pen are there because God wanted them to be there. It'd be like us saying the dotting of an I or a crossing of a T when we write in cursive. He, Jesus said even the dotting of the I, the crossing of the T, it's there because God wants it to be there and it will not be taken away until all is fulfilled. How thoroughly did Jesus believe in inspiration? Even the dotting of the I, the crossing of the T, the jot and the tittle. Jesus said those are there because God wants them to be there. In another text, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was dealing with the Sadducees. You remember that the Sadducees was a particular sect of the Jews that did not believe in life beyond death. And so they were often challenging Jesus' teachings and so forth, and he, he had to answer them. And in this text, in Matthew 22, he's dealing with the Sadducees. We just pick up part of that discussion. As he's making an argument, Jesus is making an argument that there is life beyond death, Okay? And so he says, Matthew 22, beginning verse 31, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now notice here, uh, Jesus uh, is, is actually talking about the instance where God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And so God, in speaking to Moses, said, 
I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God was, when God said that to Moses at the burning bush, now get your Old Testament chronology in your mind here. When God said that to Moses at the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for centuries, okay? They've been dead a long time. But notice, it's the current tense verb, I am. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus concludes from that, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So basically, Jesus is making a whole argument here against the Sadducees who say, when you're dead, you're dead all over. You know, when, when, when you're dead, there's no life beyond the grave. Jesus is answering that false position by arguing not just the wording, but even the tense of the verb that was used by Jesus here. The fact that Jesus used a current tense verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been physically dead for centuries. He's saying that tense of the verb proves God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive beyond the grave. Now get that. How thoroughly did Jesus think that the Scriptures were inspired? He, he believed that thorough inspiration of the Scriptures so much that he could lay down an argument based upon the verb tense used in that quote. That's significant, and again, I think it stresses just how complete the inspiration of the Bible is. In Matthew 10, verse 19, Jesus promised his disciples, Hebrews, or excuse me, Matthew 10, verse 19, but when they deliver you up, take no thought how, how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Notice, don't even have to think about what to say. Because it's not you that's speaking. It's the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Those men were inspired to speak the words of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that ye might know the things which are freely given you, or excuse me, that ye might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Notice, Paul says that he and the other inspired writers and speakers, we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, we speak in the words which the Holy Ghost teaches. Again, emphasis on the very words that were being given. And finally, just one more. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. He said it's not the word of men. It is the word of God. And so, clearly, the Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. But our lesson is, what does the evidence say? You know, as, as you obviously no, it's possible to make any sort of a claim. It's another thing to prove it to be so, right? Claiming something's one thing, proving it is something else. I hope you agree with me that there's no doubt at all as to what the Bible claims about itself, but can it be proven to be true? And I believe the answer is yes. And let's look at just 
Again, we'll have to move quickly, and we can really only touch the hem of the garment, but let's look at some of the proofs for the Bible claim of inspiration. First of all, we talk about the unity and harmony of the Bible. It's clear as we study the Scriptures and as we understand the various authors of the different books in the Bible that the, the Bible was written by approximately 40 human writers, or we might say human penmen. God used these men to pen His words. The reason we have to say approximately is because there are a few books of the Bible that we're, we can't say with absolute certainty who the, who the men were who wrote them, but approximately 40, in that neighborhood at least, uh, of, of writers of the Bible. Now, those writers wrote over a period of 1,500 years. Uh, the newest parts of our Bible were written in the first century A.D., right? About 2,000 years ago. The oldest parts of the Bible were written by Moses about 1,500 years before Christ. So there's about a 1,500-year period there in which this revelation was being given. Now, a, a very simple observation is if there were 40 men writing over 1,500 years, that establishes the fact that they couldn't have known one another. They didn't. Many of them did. Now, some of them did know one another, but many of them did not know one another, didn't even, couldn't have known each other, even if they wanted to. And so these men were writing what they wrote independent from one another. They wrote from different locations, different geographical locations. Moses wrote from the Sinai Peninsula, David from Babylon, Jeremiah from Jerusalem, Paul from a Roman prison. They wrote from different places in the world. Again, emphasizing the fact that they could not have collaborated with each other. They couldn't have worked together and come to some agreement about what they were writing. They didn't know each other. They didn't live in the same places. They came from different backgrounds, social, economic, educational backgrounds. Moses, uh, of course, grew up in Egypt uh, as royalty. He was the grandson of the king in Egypt. David himself was a literal king. Amos, though, just a simple herdsman. Daniel was a statesman in Babylon. Ezekiel, a priest. Luke, a doctor. Matthew, a tax collector. And just the list keeps going. Huge diversity there in regards to their occupations, their backgrounds, their educations. Furthermore, they didn't even all speak the same languages. The Old Testament, of course, is written in Hebrew with just a little bit of Aramaic thrown in. The New Testament is written in Greek. Now, I want you to look at that. Look at all that diversity of these 40 different writers. of the Bible. What's the chance? I want to ask you, what's the chance of getting those 40 men writing over a long period of time from different locations, from different backgrounds, and even in different languages? What's the chance that when you get done, you can put their writing together and it all meshes perfectly? No contradiction at all. I'll tell you. That is an impossibility. It couldn't possibly happen unless God was guiding the process, right? If you don't, if you don't think that would be a challenging thing, uh, maybe you could do an experiment in your car on the way home from services this morning. If you've got two or three or four of you riding together in the car, uh, try to get agreement about what you had for supper last night. Everything that was on the, on the table at supper last night. I don't think you can get that kind of agreement. You were all there just a few hours ago. But you can't even agree about something. It'd be hard, if not impossible, to do something that simple. How hard would it be to get these 40 writers to, to produce a finished work that has complete unity and harmony, no contradiction, 
The only way that could be. I think that's one of the strongest arguments for the inspiration of the Scriptures is the unity and harmony and lack of contradiction. I'll tell you another proof of inspiration has to be the flawless accuracy of the Bible. For instance, when the Bible speaks of historic events or when it mentions geographical locations, it is always accurate. Now, please understand, we're not saying that the Bible is a history book. It's not. It's not a general history book. It talks about a lot of history. It talks about sort of a specific history of a certain group of people. Uh, the descendants of Abraham are traced all through the Old Testament. In the course of that, it mentions a lot of historical things that might be confirmed or denied by archaeological discoveries and so forth. What we find is that the Bible is always accurate in the history that it conveys. It's always accurate when it references geographical relationships of different places. The Bible's not a geography book. But when it does mention things that we could either prove or deny based upon studying the actual geography of things, we find out that it's geographically accurate. But now let me ask you a question. What would you expect? If the Bible is from God, you'd expect that, wouldn't you? In fact, if you found historic flaws or geographical flaws, you'd think, man, that's a big problem. But thankfully, we don't find those. We find that the Bible is flawlessly accurate in those regards. We could talk about the accuracy of the Bible in regards to scientific things. Now, again, the Bible is not a science book. It was never intended to be a science book. But, of course, there are some things that are mentioned in the Bible that science can either confirm to be true or confirm to be in error. Which is so? Well, it's interesting that the Bible is scientifically accurate in all, all regards. It never says something that science has come along later and proven to be false. In fact, the Bible spoke of things that men did not even know in the days that the Bible were, were being written. For instance, there is something uh, that science now describes as the hyd- hydrologic cycle. The hydrologic cycle. Let me read the verse and you'll get the idea of what this hydrologic cycle is. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7 says, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Think about that for a minute. You know, uh, they tell us the Mississippi River. Have you, ever been, have you ever been around the Mississippi River, especially the southern stretches of the Mississippi River? That thing is enormous. One time when I was in a gospel meeting uh, in Missouri, uh, a fellow took me fishing on the Mississippi River. <laughs> I'll tell you, that's big water. At the mouth of the Mississippi River, where the Mississippi River dumps water into the Gulf of Mexico, they measure that six million gallons of water every second. Six million gallons of water every second are being dumped into the Gulf of Mexico from the Mississippi River. I'll tell you, that Gulf of Mexico, or yeah, that Gulf of Mexico, that's got to overflow pretty soon, doesn't it? I mean, as six million gallons of water a second are being dumped into it, surely it's got to overflow. It never overflows. Why does it not overflow? Well, because we understand now, although Solomon didn't know this when he wrote Ecclesiastes, we understand now that all that water out there in the ocean is evaporating back up into the clouds, coming back over the land, raining down again, and what Solomon described is actually happening, although men didn't know that at the time. Science has now been able to confirm that that is an accurate statement. Um, Psalms 8, verse 8, 
mentions paths in the sea. I wonder what that's a reference to anyway. Well, only in recent times have people discovered that there are great ocean currents. Actually, they were discovered only a little over a hundred years ago. Uh, They discovered that there are great currents in the sea, paths of the sea, if you will. That's the idea. Different references in the Bible to medicine, physics, astrology, uh, excuse me, yeah, astronomy, not astrology, astronomy, uh, biology. Again, the Bible is not a science book, was never intended to be, but what you would expect if it's from God is that wherever it mentions something that science could come along later and either confirm or deny, it's always been accurate in those regards. And so, the flawless accuracy of the Bible has to be an indication of its inspiration. Finally, let me suggest to you that a powerful proof of inspiration is fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy does not always mean telling things off in the future. To prophesy simply was to tell forth. And the prophets of God revealed God's message to mankind. But but often, the prophets would tell of things that were going to happen in the future. And when they did, the prophets of God and their record in the inspired Word of God is always true. I want to go through, and I've done this with you before, but I want to go through with you just as an example of fulfilled prophecy, the neat prophecies uh, about Tyre. Tyre was an important seacoast city in ancient times, and they they had ships and they, they... went all over the known world carrying goods and bringing in goods and so forth. There were some prophecies made about Tyre by Ezekiel. Uh, now, Ezekiel would have written these prophecies about 590 B.C. Get that date, 590 B.C. The first of the prophecies he made said that many nations would attack Tyre. The first of them would be Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, well, The fact of the matter is that that came true uh, in 572. So less than 20 years after Ezekiel made that prophecy, sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar came and that red line suggests a siege that he placed against the city of Tyre. That's the way you fought wars back then. When you came to a fortified city, you laid siege to it. You cut it off. The hope is that you could sort of starve them out and they'd have to surrender. So in 572... Nebuchadnezzar came and he laid siege to the city. Ezekiel had prophesied that that would happen. Well, someone might argue, big deal. I mean, what kind of a prophecy is that anyway? Nebuchadnezzar was attacking and defeating everybody. That's not much of a prophecy, someone might argue. And and potentially we would agree with that. But that wasn't all Ezekiel said. Ezekiel went on to say that Nebuchadnezzar would receive no spoil from the city. Now, that's unusual, right? Because that's why armies attacked cities, was to gather the spoil, to get the riches from those people and take them home. But Ezekiel said that Nebuchadnezzar would receive no spoil from the city when he conquered it. Kind of an unusual prediction, but what's interesting, that also was fulfilled in 572 when the city's people and wealth slipped slipped away to a nearby island. What they did, while Nebuchadnezzar had them under siege, they had ships anyway, right? And so they took all of their wealth and people and transferred them to this island that was about a half a mile offshore so that when the city fell, there was nothing there to take. And the prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar came true. I mean, the prophecy of Ezekiel about Nebuchadnezzar came true. Now, someone says, 
Uh, I don't know about that. that. That's kind of impressive, isn't it, that Nebuchadnezzar would predict that? But a, a skeptic, a doubter, could say, I don't know. Again, knowing they were seagoing people, knowing they had ships, maybe that was not such a stretch of the imagination to, to think that they might do that. I think it's pretty significant, but again, someone might say, not, not all that terribly impressive. Well, we're not done yet. Ezekiel also prophesied that the dust of the city was to be scraped. The area would be left like the top of a rock. Also, the ruins of the city would be cast into the sea. Now, what's interesting is that was not fulfilled less than 20 years later when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the city. That was not fulfilled. The, the, the city was not scraped. The ruins were not thrown into the sea. It was not left bare like the top of the rock. Somebody said, oh, Ezekiel missed it. He prophesied it. But it didn't happen. No, it did happen. What happened was in 332 B.C., about 250 years later, in fact, when Alexander the Great's army came to the same location, the people were all off, the people and the wealth were all off on that island. You know, you know what Alexander did? He had his army take the ruins of the former mainland city and they built a causeway out to the island. They scraped the city and dumped the ruins into the sea and they built a land bridge over to that island and they conquered the city and took its wealth. But that didn't happen until 250 years later. Now, the question you've got to ask is, how do you think Ezekiel knew that? How do you think Ezekiel would have been able to prophesy that anyway? Well, I argue the only way he could have known that is because God told him so. And this is just one example, hundreds of such examples of fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament. By the way, you think that we're, this is a stretch or maybe this is an exaggeration? Not exactly so. There's that map that we were just suggesting as we told the tale. You know, we got something now that they didn't have back then. We got satellite photography. Here's a satellite picture of that area today. Look kind of similar? Look at that again. That look kind of similar? Archaeologists have been able to track that causeway. Now, it's, it's sort of sedimentation has sort of filled in the edges of it. But you can see it there, can't you? You can see what Ezekiel prophesied. It didn't come true for 250 years, but it did come true because that's the way prophecy is. And again, we have confirming proof of the inspiration of the Bible. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. We can have great confidence in it. Finally, real quickly, I'm going too long again. Uh, years ago, long time ago, uh, a, a well-known Baptist preacher, Charles Wesley, made an argument about the Bible. I think his argument is sound. I think it makes good sense. He said, the Bible must be the product of good men or angels, bad men or devils, or God. And really what he suggested there is that those are the only options that are available, right? Here's the Bible. How did we get it? Where did it come from? Well, he said maybe good men or angels produced this Bible. Or a second option would be bad men or devils produced this Bible or God produced it. All right? Can you think of any other options? Wouldn't those be the only three options available to us? All right, now, he says... First of all, he says it couldn't be good men or angels. Notice his reasoning here. He said, it could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would or could make a book 
and tell lies all the time they were writing, saying, thus saith the Lord, when it was really only their own invention. You get that? So eliminate that possibility. It couldn't be, they wouldn't be good men they, or angels if they're lying about what they're producing, right? It couldn't be that. He says it couldn't be bad men or devils either. He says it could not be the invention of bad men or devils for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell for all eternity. Bad men or devils couldn't do it either, right? And therefore, the only, by process of elimination, the only option is that the Bible must be the product of God. He says, therefore, I draw this conclusion that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. Kind of an interesting way to argue the case, don't you agree? As we've been teaching these lessons, at the end, each time we've said, well, if that's so, and the evidence seems to say that is so, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then how should I react? That conclusion. If that's a true and accurate conclusion, how should I react to it? Well, simple. You've got to learn what it says and obey its instructions. It wouldn't even make sense to do otherwise. If that Bible really is a message from God, we already talked about the existence of God, the Almighty God, who had the power, as we studied last week, to create all the universe. And then He spoke to us. He revealed Himself to us through the Bible. It only makes sense to do what he says, right? It'd be illogical to do otherwise. Have you done so? Have you learned the truth? Have you been obedient to it? We're going to sing a song of invitation. As we sing, we'll be encouraging you to obey God. Upon hearing his truth and believing it, will you repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, and be baptized for the remission of sins? We're ready to assist you in that obedience, or we'd be glad to study more with you. You just let us know. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, you need to come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. We'd be glad to pray with you and for you. Let us know how we can help while we stand and sing this song. For Jesus, oh my brother,